0: pizza from Argentina, Asian food in Mexico, and Portuguese donuts in Hawaii. This week, we're talking with food historian Rachel Loudon. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences, this is the Destination Eat Drink podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies, I'm Brent Peterson. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Alex Miyazi editor of Gastro Obscura. And if you want to hear that conversation, go to DestinationEatDrink.com, click on the podcast tab, and check out episode 34. Anyway, Alex told me about Rachel Loudon, a food historian, and I thought what he said about Rachel's writing was interesting. So I looked her up and started reading her work and was absolutely blown away. Her takes on food and food history are far from conventional, but very well researched. So I reached out to Rachel and asked her if she'd like to be on the program and was surprised when she said sure. So we talked about Hawaiian food, Mexican food, Italian food, and processed food, which isn't what you think in Rachel Loudon's world. Destination, eat, drink, Rachel Loudon is an historian and author. Her book, The Food of Paradise, Exploring Hawaii's Culinary Heritage, won the prestigious Jane Grigson Julia Child Prize of the International Association of Culinary Professionals. Rachel's book, Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History, won the IACP Cookbook Award for Best Book in Culinary History. Rachel Loudon, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Delighted to be here, friend. Rachel, you have such a fascinating backstory before we get into your writing about food and food history, tell me a little bit about your childhood in England.
1: I grew up on an English farm uh to an American. I find that often um sounds uh, rather depressing um, It was not so at all in england um Uh, farmers uh, were um, prosperous, and England is small. So our farm was 80 miles from London, so I had the best of city and country, um, you know, horses to ride and rivers to swim in on the one hand, and um, the British Museum and um, the London Theatre on the other. Uh, so uh, I count myself very lucky to have had that childhood and especially to have had the experience of the production of food firsthand.
0: You grew up in a, in a farming family, as you said, but you went on to a very prestigious academic career, receiving your Ph.D. in History and Philosophy of Science, was that unusual for a, a rural child to have that level of education in england
1: it depends uh england's uh, uh countryside just because of the size of the country is less uh remote from the city my father had been to cambridge and read economics and uh modern languages and um it wasn't perhaps absolutely routine, but it wasn't particularly unusual.
0: After you got your PhD, you embarked on a academic career. What led you to food history and food culture?
1: Really, my time in Hawaii. Um, I'd always been interested in food, just partly because i of growing up on the farm partly because, uh, as for many people in my generation, cooking became a hobby for me, uh, uh, a pleasant break from reading and typing academic articles. Um, But I never wanted to write a cookbook, for goodness sake, we have so many of them out there. And so I never thought about writing about food until I got to Hawaii. And priding myself on being really fairly sophisticated about food, I was just at a complete loss when we got to Honolulu. And um, in I was teaching at the university, and my students and the office staff brought in food that I had no idea about. And uh, the secretary took me in hand and said, well, Rachel, you don't know much about Japanese food, do you? She was Japanese. And I said, not much. And she said, well, we'll have to teach you about the food in the islands. And I set about learning about it because, uh, as you know, having lived there, um, the actual uh, population of the islands is rather different from the image it has in the tourist literature. The population is about one-third Asian, one-third Pacific Islander, including Hawaiian, and one-third, um, let's call them Anglos, um, mainly Americans. And these three groups are very distinct in terms of their food. Um, The Asians basically eat rice and use, uh, uh, many of them are Buddhist. The Pacific Islanders use underground ovens and uh, still have strong traces of their indigenous religious heritage. And the Anglos eat bread and roasts and use modern ovens. And so these people have stuck out there in the middle of the pacific miles the one of the most isolated inhabited lands on earth they have to get on and they use food extensively to build bonds between these three different traditions
0: what was some of the food that you'd this sounds like a very eye-opening experience for you. What was some of the food that you first encountered that you thought, wow, this is incredibly interesting? And I want to devote more time to it.
1: I remember almost the first day I was in the office, there was a plate of little round brown things. And I said, Well, what are these? And they said that and I said Oh really? Um, so what are andagi? They said, "Oh, they're just like malasadas." And I said, "Well, what are malasadas?" <laughs> and it turns out that malasadas are a Portuguese donut, and andagi are a kind of Okinawan donut. But since I had never encountered malasadas, are not made by and large in mainland Portugal, only in the Portuguese islands in the Atlantic. And I'd never encountered Okinawan food before, so this was completely new to me.
0: This is what we talk about when we talk about the um, combining of cuisines, and I I don't know that there's a better place to observe this than in Hawaii. I think what a lot of people get wrong about Hawaiian cuisine is they think it's all poke and tropical fruit and luau's, and actually it's so much more than that I
1: think it's one of the most fascinating places for food on earth just as it's one of the most fascinating places for language on earth because of this mix and this combination and uh, I think it's a a, a wonderful observatory for food and for me it overturned uh, the unthinking idea I had about food which uh, I think is very generally held, namely that food comes from uh, the land, from the terroir, that it's the native plants and animals of the region which are cooked up by peasants and then gradually refined up into higher cuisines, and that's the way cuisines evolve. And, of course, Hawaii makes complete nonsense of that story. When the Hawaiians arrived, there was essentially nothing edible in the islands except fish, seaweed, and some flightless birds that went extinct rather rapidly. And you can't live on fish and seaweed. So that every group that has come into Hawaii has had to bring in their complete uh, portmanteau, their complete suitcase, if you like, of uh, plants, animals... Uh, cooking uh, techniques, utensils, uh, customs, and uh, these have travelled over uh, 3,000 miles of ocean. And um, in Hawaii, they can they both remain distinct, but in public places also n- merge and meld. And for me, that's the model of how cuisine across the world has
0: evolved. Rachel, you famously coined the term culinary Luddism in your article, A Plea for Culinary Modernism. What exactly is culinary Luddism?
1: Uh, It is uh, a term taken from the uh, legendary Ned Ludd of 19th century England, who opposed the introduction of machinery in agriculture um, it is an attitude that says that really we want um food that is uh, grown by peasants and produced um, processed by non mechanical non modern methods we want uh we think that the food of the last hundred and fifty years has gone in the wrong direction, and we want to go back to some kind of Earlier food that was closer to nature.
0: I'll make my admission right here. I think I've been a culinary luddite as well. I had a hobby farm for a decade, and uh, you know it, it wasn't that big, but I did cultivate a full acre of land by myself with no mechanical help whatsoever, (laughs) you know, and I was very proud of that fact. And, uh, you know, and I read your article and I'm like, you know what? Rachel's got a lot of really good points here. And, you know, I think one of your points that's really that really get cuts to the core of it is the good old days weren't necessarily that good. When it comes to cuisine and diet is is that something that uh, that you believe is true?
1: I certainly believe it's true. I think we get misled because we see glorious Renaissance paintings of you know fruit and festivals and dinners and what have you, and we tend to assume uh, that that was what people were able to eat in the past, whereas in fact that was just for a tiny minority of the population, and most people had diets that today we would regard as um, dull, and for much of the year uh, um, perilously close to not starvation but serious shortage. Most places had. Um, the hungry season before the harvest came in, when um, food was very short.
0: And, you know, I think a lot of us talk about eating local. Um, being a local vor is sort of a catchphrase in the United States these days. But when you really think about it, eating 100%, being a, a local vore, some, somewhat related to being a culinary Luddite, being a local vor is nearly impossible if you're in one of the northern climbs and even if you're not is rather dull because one part of the season like you were just in austin one part of the season pretty much nothing is coming in except okra (laughs) of course i'm exaggerating a little bit but
1: Uh, yes i know I mean, really, it's nice to see people trying the farmer's markets there. But when the temperature is 110 shade, and the only thing that is coming into the harvest is okra and maybe watermelon. Yeah, it's, this is not California in, in August in, in Texas.
0: In your article, you use the term processed food a little bit differently than I think most people uh, do. When I think of processed food, immediately what springs to my mind is uh, something like Velveeta or Spam. But your definition, I think, is much different. Um, How do you describe processed food, Rachel?
1: Yeah. The reason I want to define it differently is that I want to break down this distinction Between the food of the good old days that was natural and food today that is processed and nasty, what really makes us human, what distinguishes humans from animals, is that we don't eat any food, essentially, that we have not done things to, that we have not processed. And this is really important because it's that what processing does, and this might be changes of temperature, it might be treatment with chemicals, it might be uh, cutting and pounding, mechanical treatment, it might be biological treatment as with fermentation um, and breeding, but what this does is that for our closest animal relatives, the, they have to spend a huge amount of their energy Chewing and digesting we don't think about chewing chewing doesn't take us any time at all That's because we have processed our food. So when people begin sometime early in human history and we don't know quite when to Prepare their food before they eat it. What they're effectively doing is outsourcing chewing and digesting to the kitchen. I mean, it wasn't a kitchen like we have now, but to the food preparation area. And that, for the group, not for the poor individual who does the food preparation, but for the group as a whole, is a huge increase in energy efficiency, because they don't have to spend that time. And that energy allows them to grow their brains, to shrink their stomachs, to move ahead and to uh, become fully human. And so I really want to stress just how important it is to humans to uh, eat processed food.
0: I'm working on a piece right now about one of my favorite cities, which is uh, Saracusa, Ortigia in Sicily, and their patron saint is uh, St. Lucy, and her feast day is December 13th. And on December 13th, the people in Ortizia and Saracusa do not eat bread or pasta. They don't eat any processed wheat. Instead, they eat wheat berries uh, boiled in sugar. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, this is exactly what Rachel is talking about, because wheat berries are, in essence, the unprocessed wheat. And I think of eating a, a gruel or a porridge of wheat berries as incredibly uninteresting compared to all the different kinds of breads or pasta that we could make once we created the flour out of those wheat berries. Sure, absolutely. You talk about processed food, Rachel, as freeing women from servitude. Can you explain that in a little more detail?
1: Yes, this is the more modern processed food, obviously. Um, As I said, some person in this system where processed food frees up the group, has to prepare the food. And traditionally, of course, that was the woman, and that meant that the woman's job was frequently, um, um, and it wasn't an option, it wasn't that you asked for it, you just simply had to spend most of your days, day after day, in sickness and in health, pregnant or nursing, uh, preparing food. Even in my mother's generation, that's what my mother did. Um, She was good at it. She didn't particularly enjoy it. And uh, the fact that now one can buy um, things that were not accessible to her, uh, frozen vegetables, for example, um, means a huge savings for women Uh, We would not have had women going back to work if it had not been for the industrialization of food processing, which is essentially the use of fossil fuels to to replace the human energy that used to be required in food processing.
0: I think that really comes to light when I read your article online. The first thing that hits you is this picture of three women pulling a plow. Uh, there, there's no beast of burden pulling the plow, it's, it's three women in long dresses in a field pulling a plow. Mm-hmm. How has the world changed now that cooking in the home has become uh, a virtue, a fun activity, something that you can share with your children? How is it different than what was going on in your mother's day?
1: Nobody ever thought of cooking as fun until it became voluntary. very good it wasn't the worst of all jobs it wasn't as heavy as doing laundry by hand um but it was incessant i mean we uh, and this is post-world war ii britain now it was rural britain but um the work went, there were no restaurants in Britain at that time, and we were too, and there was no pizza, um, there was fish and chips in the cities, but where we were, I never saw a fish and chip until I was 30 years old, so my mother, for a family of, uh, seven, we had an uncle and a grandmother and a, seven or eight always, um, had to cook a breakfast because that was the main meal you took after you'd done a couple of hours' work out in the fields, dinner, which came at midday, and tea, which was the last meal of the day, and all of these had to be cooked from scratch, nowhere to buy a cake, nowhere bread we did buy, Um and so... That was the day you got up, you prepared breakfast, you washed up breakfast, no dishwasher. You prepared dinner, you washed up dinner, you prepared tea,
0: and that was it. I just wonder, when I when I hear you say this, I just wonder how a person could have time for anything else besides food preparation in those days. I mean, people...
1: Um, talk frequently about the labor of farming, of plowing and harvesting, that differs from our food preparation in two ways. One, it's much more seasonal, whereas you have to prepare food daily. And two, the labor of food preparation until we get the industrialization of it um, is more laborious and more time-consuming than farming.
0: You know, it's it's funny. I hadn't thought about this until uh, probably within the last few years. But, you know, you mentioned, Rachel, that food preparation has to happen every single day. And I remember as a child, uh, we as a family would go on vacation and everyone would go down to the beach and enjoy swimming in the water. But my mother was still preparing the food breakfast lunch and dinner every single day and i think about it i say hardly a vacation for her you know seven days a week 365 three meals a day for three boys and a husband we're talking with author and food historian rachel loudon on destination eat drink rachel this is an odd question I'm hoping you can help me with this. This is something that I've been thinking about lately. And when I knew that I was going to interview you, I said maybe Rachel can help me understand this. The United States is kind of unusual in that, other than Native American cuisine, and I guess you could include Native Hawaiian cuisine in this, we we don't really have an American cuisine per se. Um, sure, there's American cooking, but for a long time. We as Americans have been fairly comfortable with dishes coming from other parts of the world and ethnic cuisine. We've changed them, adapted them to the American palate. Um, But the one great exception for that to me is meat. And what I mean by that is animal flesh like horse meat, which is widely consumed elsewhere, is considered taboo here. Same goes for dog and cat meat, which is still consumed in China. Why is it, do you think, that so many fruits and vegetables and grains can cross cultural lines, but many kinds of meat do not?
1: Meat um, provokes disgust. Meat also provokes pleasure. Um, It's much more, I think, because it's closer to humans, um, it is always a touchstone. And I think when you look at many of these taboos that go way back, uh, they are cultural in origin. Um, The horse meat one, for example, I think um, goes back to the very determined efforts of Christians in the... 5th oh, and 6th, well, from the 5th to the 10th century, uh, Christians were trying to establish themselves across Europe, and the horse was the main um, animal in pre-Christian religions. It was the animal that you sacrificed to the gods, and then you feasted on, and um Obviously, the Christians did not want to have horse sacrifice because that was the key religious act of the non-Christians. And so they campaigned against it with enormous vigor. And what happens then is it becomes disgusting to people. It's a sign that you're just not clean uh, once you've accepted Christianity.
0: You know what? I'm so glad that you could answer that, Rachel, because I've been thinking about it for quite a while. And I would imagine that the same would go for pork in some Middle Eastern uh, cultures as well. It's thought of as unclean. Therefore, you know, it's it's taboo.
1: Yes. Um, I think it is complicated probably um, also by... Um, uh, kind of ecological considerations, um, pigs I um, definitely, I mean, here, they're mainly used as scavengers in much of the Middle East to pick up human excrement in the streets, and that is not ah. deism to people. Pigs also don't occur in nomadic cuisines because you can't herd them. Mm. So there's a whole confluence, but you're quite right that uh, meat is a much, much more, uh, much harder thing to take across uh, cultural divisions than other things. It's often really rather irrational. I mean, as you know from your Hawaii experience, there are a number of groups in the islands for whom dog has been traditionally um, a food as it was Traditionally, in many parts of the Americas, Um, and now that's thought to be completely taboo.
0: I guess what we're talking about here is transplanted cuisine, which is something you've talked and written about very extensively. What's your definition of transplanted cuisine? And give us some interesting examples of it.
1: I think all cuisines are transplanted. I can hardly think maybe the Middle East, But um, for me, that's why Hawaii is so important. Cuisines don't grow in place. Most cuisines have been moved around the world. It's interesting. I am just about to write a blog post because archaeologists have suddenly got on. Well, not suddenly, but in the last few years have got on to it. And there's a pouring out now of articles on the globalization of food in the Bronze Age. Um, And how, you know, uh, wheat got from uh, the Middle East to China um, way, way back when, how um, sorghum got from um, Africa to India, how uh, all kinds of things um, way before the beginning of the Christian era were already being moved vast distances around the world. Um, And it's not just that the plants are being moved, but a plant by itself is no use because this gets back to the processing. You can't eat raw wheat. You can't eat raw corn except when it's very young and that only lasts in the summer. So you've got to also move the food processing techniques or that plant is no use to
0: you. Which would require equipment of some kind or some kind of storage facility or something of that nature
1: would require a storage facility, it would require equipment to get it out of its shell, its husk, it would require equipment to grind it into flour, it would require utensils to cook it in, so there's a whole cultural complex that's going. And that, just to continue for a second, is why actually, I mean, people... Contrast American food with food elsewhere, which they assume has grown in place, whereas we have all this immigrant food. Don't think we're that different.
0: Ah, uh, grown in place. That's a that's a perfect term for it. Let me ask you this, Rachel. I recently spoke with Lorenz Spears, who is a Native American scholar and activist. What about Native American cuisine, that seemed to maybe um, develop in sort of isolation.
1: Native American, many many of the groups uh, adopt maize, which is coming up from um, Mexico. Um, And there's a transformation of the cuisine there. I mean, maize spreads across the Americas. Um, So do many of the other plants. So I... I don't think even Native, uh, if you're talking about Native American cuisine in terms of uh, Native Americans in in the United States, uh, I wouldn't say it's isolated. I would say it's in contact with with movements of people across the Americas.
0: All of North America and Central America. Interesting. Uh, Rachel, you're an incredibly prolific writer, and uh, folks should check out your website, rachelloudon.com one of my favorite pieces that you've written is called what's the true history of pizza consider argentina um, explain why argentina would be the place that created modern pizza
1: i'm not sure i want to go quite as far as saying it created modern pizza but okay, I am, very good i am interested in the fact that the Ita- it, the Italians in the Italian peninsula are able to claim pizza as theirs, whereas Italians who are not in the Italian peninsula cannot. Um, after all, pizza is only one of a whole range of breads topped with stuff that you get all around the Mediterranean. Um, and in uh, it was poor people's food, and particularly in uh, Naples, um, it was uh, certainly not something that would have been regarded as the culinary apex of uh, Nepoli- um cuisine uh, in the 19th century. Um So what you have um, in the middle of the 19th century is this massive out-movement of uh, Italians around the world to other parts of Europe, to Africa, and to the Americas, and particularly to the United States and Argentina and to a lesser extent Brazil. And, you know, by the late... 19th century pizza is completely integrated into the Argentine way of eating. There are two million Italians there, nearly 40 percent of the population of Buenos Aires is Italian, Um, and they're wealthier than the Italians in Italy, and they go backwards and forwards all the time. So it's in in Argentina they are able to take a flatbread and add cheese to it instead of just onions or just a few tomatoes and onions.
0: And people don't realize how expensive and difficult to obtain cheese was in Italy up until relatively recently, maybe after World War II.
1: Exactly. And so you have people in... uh Italian food becomes established much more quickly it, we we think in America that America you know Italian food has been well established here for a long time but it didn't really get established as a mainstream part of the American diet until well into the 20th century because the Italians were such a tiny proportion of the population because uh their religion was not the predominant um, Protestantism, because there were so many German immigrants who sort of had moved into the place in the United States that the Italians moved into in Argentina, and so the, by the late 19th century, the, you know, uh, Argentina is very much um, uh, es- essentially a, a province of Italy, um, and so. Uh, I'd just like to shake up the idea that uh, if people can move, but the food is owned by the place they came from.
0: To me, this is such an interesting thing. I knew there were Italians in Argentina, but I thought the migration happened in the uh, latter half of the 20th century. You're saying this started much earlier and the population is much larger than I ever imagined. Now (laughs) I I have to plan a trip to uh, Argentina. South America is one place I've never been and I've always wanted to go to Argentina. I was afraid that it was such a singular cuisine of meat and gauchos that I was, you know, I had the stereotype in my brain. You've exploded that for me, Rachel. Now I've got to get to uh, Buenos Aires and Argentina.
1: Somebody has to write up the Italian food in, in, in Buenos Aires because a lot of people go there from the United States and say, oh, this isn't really Italian food because it's not like what we have in the United States. It, they tend to cook their pasta to a softer level. They eat a lot more gnocchi. Um, but, you know, it'd be really great because... You know, you've got three areas where you have long-established Italian populations and they've each evolved in their own direction. So you can go to Buenos Aires and you can write the definitive thing on how um, Italian food, which is very widely available and excellent in Buenos Aires, it has has evolved there um, in its own way separate from both the... Italian peninsula and from the United
0: States okay, I've got my marching orders for that one um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you and your husband lived in Mexico for quite a while. What do we as Americans not understand about Mexico and Mexican cuisine?
1: oh lots and lots of things one is that uh post- the terrible civil war of the uh, first half of the 20th century, um, the Mexican Revolution, as it's called, there was a terrible need um, to reunite the country. And uh, the idea was that one way you could do it was through food and uh Food uh, was a mix of Spanish and um, indigenous, and that, of course, is uh, encapsulated in the paintings of Diego Rivera and the cookbooks of Frida Kahlo and the whole the whole school there. Um, in in fact. Um, there wasn't that much mixing until relatively recently. Um, food was highly class and thus also race bound with the, uh, well to do, um, eating first a cuisine that derived ultimately, in my view, from Baghdad, from the Islamic world and came over with the Spanish. In um, the with the conquest, um, because after all, Spain was an Islamic country right up to the time of the Mexican conquest, more or less, um, and then became uh, franchised in the 19th century, and it's really only in the 20th century that this mixing of Spanish and uh, indigenous is held. I think the other thing is that we present the United States as an immigrant country and Mexico presents itself as uh, a non-immigrant country. That There was the conquest way back then, but there aren't immigrants. In fact, there has been huge immigration into uh, Mexico by other groups right from the get-go there were probably more Asians and probably more Africans in Mexico in the 18th century than there were Spanish um, because the Asians were coming over from on the Acapulco Galleon that sailed between the Philippines and uh, the uh, and the West Coast. Uh, Africans were brought in as slaves but were able to uh escape slavery and integrate into society faster than they were in the United States. And since then, there have been other groups, uh, other Europeans, um, Lebanese, terribly important, all kinds of groups. So that when you look at Mexican cuisine uh, from this perspective, it looks a lot more like, I mean, not in the specific dishes, but in the way it's being constructed to my mind, it looks a lot more like the United States than this, the very different history that gets told.
0: That's so interesting. I had no idea there were that many Asian people in Mexico. Is there a certain way that um, Asian cuisine has manifested itself in Mexico over the years?
1: Oh, there are all kinds of ways. I mean, one of the troubles is it's hard to know what comes when. We do know, for example, that... Uh, there were plantations growing palm wine, uh, of palm trees for palm wine, um, in the 17th um, and 18th centuries in Mexico. Um, they were uh, staffed by people from the Philippines who knew how to tap palm trees and make palm wine. It's called Chuba in Mexico. And this was then distilled for use in the mining towns, the very rich silver mining towns. So that, the tuba goes way back when. There was further Mexican, uh, um, Chinese, and uh, Japanese immigration in the 19th and 20th centuries. So certain other things like dried shrimp, uh, ceviche, um, chamoy sauce, which chamoy sauce, um, has had a little vogue recently. You were in Hawaii. Chamoy is simply say which is simply crack seed, which is a Chinese snack food, as you know. Yes. That, um, is in, in Mexico. When it came, we don't exactly know. The cacahuates japoneses, the mochi-covered peanuts that are so popular in Mexico, are um, Japanese, uh, obviously. Um, And then there's the rice question, um, because the Mexicans have an Asian-style rice prepared in a uh, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean way. Um, we don't know quite how that works. Or, uh, so there are all kinds... Of, nobody's gone looking. If you tell yourself it's all Spanish and indigenous, you're not going to be looking for things that come from elsewhere.
0: Rachel Loudon, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink and opening my mind that all cuisine is transplanted cuisine. It's just been a joy talking to you, and thank you for taking the time to be on the show today.
1: It's been my pleasure, Brent. Thank you for having
0: me. How interesting is Rachel Loudon? I just love talking with her, and even though in some ways I can still be a culinary Luddite, her take that all food is transplanted food is spot on. Thanks again to Rachel for being on the show, and check out her writing at rachelloudon.com. Destination Eat Drinks distributor is Ed Silla of Radio Misfits. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and RadioMisfits.com. You can also get links to every episode at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the podcast tab. Next week, we'll be visiting one of my all time favorite places in the world. And it's not a huge blockbuster city. It's the small island of Ortizia in Sicily. Thanks for listening. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.